2: I am Brian Sullivan and tonight have the IPO Floodgates just opened Kava Blows the roof off its public debut, but who? We went around and found out for ourselves. Target Goldman Sachs. Its roll around Silicon Valley Bank's collapse now being probed by the feds. One car maker stock on an absolute tear, and it's not Tesla. And it may have just changed the entire EV game. Wanna buy a house? Good luck finding one. The housing shortage intensifies. One of the industry's biggest players will join us on when it may let up. And hidden fees be gone. A huge shakeup is coming for sports and concert goers. The CEO of SeatGeek will be here. All that and much more. So as always, belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories, of course, over the hour. But first up on last call, the unstoppable recent rally. Not even a hawkish sounding Fed can derail the bull's momentum, at least for now. The Dow locking up a fresh closing high for the year. The S&P 500 above 4,400. The Nasdaq at 14 month highs. Virtually every sector is riding the wave, not just tech. You got manufacturing, you got some energy, you name it. Why not? there are a lot of good signals to point to. Inflation does appear to be cooling off. Retail sales, they were strong last month. Consumer spending even on big ticket items. Jobs, they're plentiful. You want a job? You probably got one. And energy costs have come down. So you can't blame investors for feeling pretty optimistic about things. Just think about where we were in the early part of this year. Many strategists were predicting the S&P 500 would end the year between 3,900 or 4,000. Now, some of those have had to raise their forecasts. The average, though, is still below where we are trading. The year was kind of supposed to be a mess, but it's not—at least so far. So, how many got so so much so wrong, and where do we go from here after this blazing hot summer start? Joining us now with some further insight, seasoned investor and founder of Tasty Trade, Tom. Saznov, Tom, to what do you attribute or ascribe this nice little rally that was tasty? Rally that we are
1: in. I love when you guys call me up to to spoil the party. I'm the fun vacuum, as they say. Tom Saznov, appreciate
2: it. Good night. I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, it's it really has been an amazing rally. I mean, it's easy. It's easy to you, you can attribute this rally to the NASDAQ and you can thank a, a few of the top key players, the little mega monopolies, the, the trillion dollar babies. Um, this is all there. This is that they own this one. You know, and we we, we put out
2: some of the the macroeconomic things out there about inflation rolling over, retail sales strong. Sure. And that's all that's all that's all nice. I would consider that sprinkles. I think the actual cake here again, you're closer to it than I am. You got these CTAs, they were, you know, sort of waiting for this from a technical basis. You got a lot of hedge funds that were long, short. Maybe they were off sides a bit. There's still some pent up money on the sideline. It almost feels like some technicals are kind of kicking in.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the above, of course. But I think thinking have to I wouldn't be worried too much about inflation here. I'd be much more worried. If you want to be nervous about something, I'd be nervous about complacency. You know, Brian, I, I'm an option trader, and and we kind of specialize in option analytics. And for the first time in a long time, you know, pr- we look at pricing skew and the perception of risk, velocity of risk. And for the first time in a long time, you know, there's 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 no real foot risk velocity out there right now. The market is pricing it in on the call side, and you rarely see that except that when markets get very complacent and near market tops. So that's probably the thing I'd be most concerned about. And, of course, also the concentration of this rally. Yeah, you know, so it, we,
2: when, you, when you say risk velocity, we got a, probably a lot of non-pros watching last call. What do you sure, mean sure. in layman's terms? What is risk velocity?
1: So what the derivatives markets do is they price the velocity of risk into derivative instruments. So, for example, if the market perceives there's more upside, potentially, the the speed at which a move can go to the upside, it will price calls more expensive than puts. And if the market perceives the risk to do downside, it will price puts more expensive than calls. It's just velocity of risk. And so the market always prices puts more expensive than calls. And for the first time in a long time, it's pricing calls way more expensive than puts. And so it just means that there's been a shift in the perception of where risk is. And anytime you see that, it just shows that we're, we're getting a little complacent. We're getting maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah.
2: The bond market, I think, used to kind of control the stock market. Now, I think the options market really determines what I want to know where I think the equity market is going. I ask guys like you, ask some of the smart options guys, because options market is so big now, it can kind of push around the equity market. What is the options market saying about the near term and maybe medium term?
1: Yeah, well, options don't lie. That's always been the saying on the, on the trading floors in Chicago. Futures and options that, you know, move the S&Ps, they never lie. And so, you know, they've clearly been very strong. Specifically, the last couple of weeks have been incredible, but has been very one dimensional. You know, the Russell and the Dow have been lagging and, and the Russell specifically in a big way. So this has really been, you know, a one trick pony, a Nasdaq rally. Yeah, uh, you know, and
2: people like it though. We want we want to be happy that things are things are moving up, not down. We're it's feeling... the big
1: kids. It's the big kids. Yeah, they love it. They're
2: they're pulling all the other little kids in the wagon. Hope the wheel doesn't come off. Tom Tom Sosnow, mm-hmm. tasty trade. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, one of the other big catalysts at least today is Mediterranean fast food chain Kava. It soared well past its twenty two dollar IPO price at its debut. In fact. It came just an olive branch away from doubling. Now, if you've never heard of Kava, don't worry. Neither had we. Kava says it kind of wants to be the Chipotle of Greek-ish food. So, by the way, we went to one today. We're going to show you that a little bit later on in the show. But from a money angle, is this Kava launch of investor interest going to set fire to an ice-cold IPO market? Let's bring in First Mark Capital founder and managing director, venture capitalist Rick Heitzman, he's made notable early investments at companies like Pinterest, Airbnb, DraftKings. So clearly you're broke. Rick, good luck. Um, you know, the, here's, the one, here's, the, here's the one knock I'm going to have on Kava. And by the way, like I said, we went to one. It was pretty good. We'll show it later on in the show. They sold 14 and a half million shares. Like if I IPO'd myself, <laughs> Brian Sullivan, BTS, whatever the ticker, I would sell more shares
3: yes. than that. Well, you have to start somewhere, and I think everyone is expecting the first guys out of the box to do a smaller offering, have good growth, and be cash flow positive. I don't think anyone expected it to be a Mediterranean restaurant, but it's checking a lot of the boxes to make sure there's not a tremendous amount of downside in this first IPO out of the shoot. Yeah, obviously,
2: a couple big buyers here that get the early distributions, they, they basically or probably doubled their money. In one day, is Kava, again, the, the, the Mediterranean quick service restaurant, is that going to set
3: off more IPOs? I think our companies, we have about a half a dozen companies that are getting ready to go public in various phases across software, consumer services, and infrastructure, uh, including data and AI. And you know, what we're seeing is this had a lot more interest. There were three very large institutional buyers who put in major orders for Kava. And not only that, but there was significant buying in the aftermarket. You know, obviously, the stock doubled. It came back to earth later in the day. But it showed there's a real appetite for growth stocks who uh, have great unit economics, have a solid growth path, and have a path to profitability.
2: Yeah, and it's good. And we're happy for Kava. It's founders. It's investors. Hopefully some employees got some stock as well. But again, this is not an AI company. This is not a cloud company. It's not cybersecurity. They sell, by the way, it's pretty good. Hummus, falafel, chicken, things like that. We've seen a lot of other hot restaurant IPOs underperform after a hot debut.
3: No, I, I think that's separate to the restaurant market. I'm not an expert in the restaurant market. And I'm still waiting for you know, companies like Databricks and Data IQ on the enterprise side or Instacart or Discord on the consumer side, who are really traditional IPOs with venture-backed, high growth acceleration, you know, have gotten to a tipping point of hundreds of millions of dollars of scale. And you think you're going to act like the future leaders of tomorrow, which are the historical IPOs, and they tend not to be the restaurant companies. But I think this was a little bit of of testing the waters. Uh, in a broad sense and not in the, in the true sense of seeing what is the enterprise what is the institutional appetite for ipos after a long dark dry season over the last two years
2: yep I'm not taken away from it kava certainly was lava it was red hot today and a lot of it was people great made, it, made it was a, shocking yeah really shocking uh and it made a lot of people's day and we got you on to talk about it so we appreciate it rick and hope you come back thank you it's good all right be well all right, in the meantime, here's today's studs and duds. The biggest winner of the day, Domino's Pizza. They got an upgrade and also, as we just talked about, food stocks were hot today. The biggest loser, Warner Brothers Discovery down nearly 4%, the fate of CNN still up in the air. All right, up next here on Last Call, just call it ai Adobe, A groundbreaking innovation has Adobe investors cheering, plus Goldman Sachs feeling the heat from the feds why they want to know more about the bank's role around silicon valley banks collapse
4: at the ups store we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday you can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need
5: is there anything you can't do
4: um actually i don't have a good singing voice <clears throat> the UPS Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
5: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you All right, time now for tomorrow's news
2: tonight. Some of the stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, been a big day for Adobe. Shares, the software company jumping after hours following the company's earnings. And, of course, the major theme, what else? Artificial intelligence. Adobe CEO saying that Adobe is in position to lead in the new era of generative AI. He spoke with Jim Cramer last hour. Here's what he said about the future of AI.
6: Is this going to replace human ingenuity or is it going to augment human ingenuity? I think it's actually going to make people so much more productive. It's going to
3: bring so many more marketing folks or smaller medium businesses into the fold in terms of saying we have this creative idea and now we can use the tools
2: even more easily to create it. All right. Shares of Adobe have surged over 31%, about $55 billion in market cap added just since May 23rd. That's when the company announced it would be adding AI features to its Photoshop platform. Next up, Virgin Galactic. The company saying it is targeting the end of this month for its first commercial space flight, with a second flight to follow in early August. After the second flight in August, it will aim for monthly commercial trips into space. Investors love the news. The stock in the stratosphere after hours. Up 37%. Virgin concluded their first test flight back in May. And finally, a big move in the crypto world. BlackRock has filed an application with the SEC for its spot Bitcoin ETF. The investment firm listing Coinbase as the Bitcoin custodian. This is the SEC is currently in a legal battle with the crypto exchange. Now, if this is approved, big if, it would be the first spot Bitcoin ETF to launch. Meaning, if you, don't, if you want to buy Bitcoin but don't want to buy Bitcoin... If this is approved, you can just buy the ETF like a stock and get exposure to Bitcoin without, like we said, buying Bitcoin. All right, turning out of the banks, and a big story breaking earlier today. The Wall Street Journal reporting the Federal Reserve and the SEC probing the role Goldman Sachs took in Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. The investigation reportedly examining Goldman's buying SVB's security portfolio prior to the bank's failure back in March. Shares of Goldman declining sharply following that, but have rebounded after hours. Joining us now is New York Times reporter Kate Kelly. Kate, have you been able to, I know you're working the phones, working the emails, working the texts. Have you been able to independently verify this journal story?
6: I'm not, Brian, unfortunately. So we have to give the journal credit for having this exclusive at the moment. Um, I have verified some details of the surrounding sort of issues. But at the moment, Wall Street Journal reporting this and uh, nobody that I've seen has matched them. Um, We do know because Goldman disclosed in their 10Q relatively recently under the heading Silicon Valley matters that there were various legal issues, uh, legal inquiries into the Silicon Valley uh, IPO and collapse uh, this past March. And uh, with it, uh, we understand, as of today, with this reporting, that there is a particular uh, desire for information on the part of the government uh, about Goldman's dual roles, really. They were advising Silicon Valley Bank, and they also bought a roughly $20 billion portfolio of available-for-sale debt securities. Now, Goldman, and, and the journal reflects this as well, has said... You know, we notified uh, the CFO of SVB at the time that if we were going to buy these assets, which they did, they needed to get a third party advisor on that, and you know they could not rely on us for that. Well, as an aside, obviously because they were buying those assets, it was appropriate Mm. for other advice to come in. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting about this, Brian, it's a good scoop. um, Assuming assuming they have the facts right, and and I have no reason to doubt the Journal where I I worked for years. But assuming it's right, you know, it's Goldman doing what Goldman has a history of being accused of doing, which is wearing at times more than one hat, you know? So like back in 2007, in the run-up to the mortgage crisis, the the financial crisis, um, they made $4 billion shorting mortgage-backed securities, which was a story I broke for the journal at the time. At the same time, you know, they were selling some of these mortgage-backed securities and iterations of them to some of their clients on the long side. This became, of course, an issue. Uh, They were eventually, sued by the SEC over that yeah. and settled to the tune of 550 million in 2010, which was a record at that time. And,
2: and it's so easy for our audience to be like, see, they knew what they were doing. They're buying over here. and Goldman is a giant firm. They got people on all, all places in all of the world you know, it, it's it's not like you have to say there's some something devious going on here. It's just that they're a gigantic company. You got one team believes something over here. We saw it in the big short, by the way, Deutsche Bank, the guy that was saying short the CDS's, they're like, well, isn't your bank selling on the long side as well? And he was. Here, on this, coming back to this story, though, Kate, I talked to a, a longtime Wall Street executive, runs a bank, He was out of his mind about this. He said, where they screwed up, and he was kind of pointing to Goldman and some others, is that they did this during the week. A lot of this was during the week when trading was open. I think it was a Wednesday when there was like the secondary offering. This should have all been done, according to this one guy who was out of his mind, all been done over the weekend. You do it starting Friday night, you work all weekend long, the market, you solve it Sunday night, and the market opens up. And I think that's where, and everything's fine, I think that's where a lot of the criticism was here, is that this stuff was being done as the market was open.
6: That's a really interesting point. So your source is saying we, they should have done this over the weekend, over the counter, you know, quietly. Yes. Um, that's an interesting point. I mean, the journal points out that Greg Becker, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank at the time, was concerned about this sale because it would have signaled like an SOS to the market. Well, um, it sounds like that's what your source was pointing to as well you know, it's hard to know in the fog of war what's going to happen. I think, you know, clearly by the end of that week, we're both remembering there was a major problem at SBB that that was no secret. I mean, you had Peter Thiel and others who had been clients of the bank, you know, warning their associates that it might be time to take money out. Um, So probably its days were numbered. But but yeah, I mean, There's always this tension when you have a a flailing financial institution between doing the things to do to raise equity, right, to to get assets off your balance sheet, to make sure that you can live another day. And on the other hand, not, as we say, crying fire in a crowded theater. And we don't
2: know, again, it's a journal story, but you did. We got uh, they played the music, Kate. I guess that means we're done. But Goldman kind of alluded to it in their latest earnings. We'll find out more. Kate Kelly, welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. Even Folks, even I get the hook, and I host the show. All right, on deck. Look at that. That's me. As Cava rocked its IPO, we wanted to see what all the fuss and falafel was about, so I went to a Cava today. We're going to show you what we found coming up, plus the auto stock on an incredible tear, and no, it is not Tesla. It may have changed the entire EV game as you know it, and we'll tell you about it coming up.
5: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
2: All right, welcome back to Last Call. Hope you had a great day. We're going to tell you now about an automaker on a tear, and it's not named Tesla. Today, Toyota hit a new 52-week high. Stock is on track to have its best week since. Get this april of 2009 now unless it tanks tomorrow toyota could just have its third ever double digit weekly gain in more than 20 years wow now this week toyota outlined plans for a new generation of electric cars and while many other automakers are crowing about 300 or 400 mile range toyota says hold my beer and says that in a few years, its cars could get more than 600 miles on a fast charge. Now, that got our interest. Toyota also is working on so-called solid-state batteries, like other people are, by the way, that in a few years could be another dagger in the heart of the piston engine. It's a big deal for Toyota. Till now, the automaker mostly had a hybrid strategy, kind of the opposite of what a lot of Detroit is doing, which is focusing more, especially GM, on more all-electric and more expensive cars. So is Toyota's long-term EV strategy going to pay off and more? Could that new technology leave Tesla and much of Detroit, maybe, in the dust? Let's talk about it with Road and Track Editor-in-Chief Mike Guy and auto expert and car coach Lauren Fix. Mike and Lauren, thank you for joining us. Mike, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter. I tweet about EVs all the time. I'm driving one right now. People are like, you hate EVs. No, I don't. I do not. I'm driving one. I don't hate them. What I'm saying is I don't want to go 280 miles for $85,000. How significant could this Toyota development be? Because they've been kind of under the radar on the EV world.
7: I'm driving a, a, an EV right now too, and I'm experiencing all of uh, all of the wonder of EVs as well as the frustrations of it. And I got to say, like, I look at that number, and I wonder how much veracity. It seems a little bit pie in the sky to me. Like, in plus six hundred miles, that, you mean? Six hundred miles, like right now. I mean, Lucid comes relatively close according to their claims. People are claiming to get a lot of a lot out of the chemistry, but fact of the matter is, like. It, Whenever I hear somebody talking about solid state batteries, especially a car maker, I, I, I hesitate for a second because it's sort of become a bit of a shorthand for we don't know what the heck is going to be happening in 10 years. And solid state is, all right, well, let's try and explain solid state. How are we going to get to the place where we can have that kind of energy density? Nobody actually knows. It's actually, I got to take a relatively contrarian position to the stock market today and say this might be a bit of a step back for Toyota because I think their there's strength. Oh. And the fact that they've gone so far on this hybrid platform, I mean, they own it. They built it in 97, brought it to the market with a Prius. And, you know, it's the first time since World War II Or oh, yeah, I get it. It's a hard, confusing time since OEM, since manufacturers don't know what they're going to be building in 10 years. I, I, Lauren, I've got,
2: uh, you know, listen, you know, I've got friends. I got a little extra cash. I live in a liberal area. Everybody I know has got an EV. I know a lot of guys that have given them back. I know a lot of guys that have given them back you know for they love the they love the acceleration but they're like, ah, eh, you don't got to get a Tahoe." I've never met anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met anybody who's given back a Prius. Everybody I know with a Prius loves it.
7: There's there's right. an because the fact That's, that Lauren, you
2: get the go hybrid ahead and then Mike I want to get your comment. Yeah.
8: Yeah, because once you have the hybrid technology, you get the phenomenal fuel economy, 52-54 miles to the gallon. You can get a plug-in Prius if you want and still get that additional drive on electricity if you want and great fuel economy. Right now, gas prices are not through the roof like they were, they could go back. But there are a lot of people that got electric vehicles and it's not the vehicles, the vehicles are great. It's the charging infrastructure, which is the problem. I just turned in an electric vehicle and I everywhere I went to charge, there was either someone there who basically left their car and gone or the fact that it you know, wasn't working. So this is a problem unless you charge at home. And yeah, I have a home charger like many people that do in our industry. But the fact is, I like the hybrid technology, mm. and Toyota's really come up with some interesting mixes of plug-in, electric that they're offering or they're going to offer. We drove the BZ Concepts, and we've seen that, what they've got coming. But in addition to that, they still offer gas. They still offer other vehicles, but they're planning on doing hydrogen as well. So having a broad range of options for customers, depending upon where you live, makes sense. Where I live, there's no infrastructure. There's no fast charging at all. There is There is, so, there, there is outside of my garage.
2: And today I charged for 45 <laughs> minutes and it added 13 miles. I got 4.5 kilowatt hour. Now it was one of these charge point long-term things, but I was like, eh, womp, yeah, womp, womp. You know, here's my, here's my, here's my <laughs> issue. Here's my issue, Mike, is that people are saying, oh, you don't like this, you don't like that. You know what I like? I like detroit i like my friends who live in detroit i like my friends whose dad worked on the line for ford and gm and i worry about detroit i worry about some of these all-in strategies where if if i'm presenting you a product that's eighty thousand dollars that goes 150 miles towing a jet ski okay and toyota's coming out with a tundra instead that'll go 500 miles on a tank of gas you stop for seven minutes to go to the bathroom i worry about detroit i'm not worried about evs i'm worried about jobs
7: I, I, I'm with you right. uh, to agree. I, I, I think Jim Farley's a smart dude at Ford. Um, they're doing I, it differently than GM, right? They're doing a little, maybe a
2: little smarter, like a bolt on EV strategy, not, not maybe all in.
7: Yeah. And they, they were the first to approach Elon, uh, and actually secure a deal for that, for his infrastructure, which is, I mean, the Tesla supercharger network is the value of Tesla in my mind, despite what they're pulling off for sales right now. But, uh, the end of the day like Toyota uh, Ford GM there's smart there's a lot of smart people there I think Toyota particularly is really smart what I'm seeing with Toyota right now today with this with the stock move today and with this these bold claims about solid state technology you know they've been making these claims for years it was 2021 2022 now it's 2028. I, there's an internal political battle going on there because the Toyota family' is being pushed out. and they're the ones who really mm. made the play for hybrid. It was Mr. Mm-hmm. Toyota, the grandfather of uh, the, well, soon to step down chairman of Toyota, who made the gave us the Prius and who's really went all in on the on the hybrid. So I'm seeing this is maybe a little bit of a power struggle inside of Toyota that isn't resolved yet. Yeah, but I think at the end of the day, GM, is going to be making gas cars. They're going to make EVs for a while. We're still around six percent of the marketplace. We don't have the right materials. We don't know what the batteries. Well, be. and also, sorry, Mike. The, the Lord, they want to cut. I want to
2: get Lauren in one more time. They're cut. The these, the gas cars pay for the all the development of, of what's happening. If you don't have the right. gas cars, you don't have any cars because there you can't lose money on every car and, and make it up in volume. By the way, I want to show this. Elon Musk and is this new guys Did Elon just tweet this out? I don't know. That was yesterday. Okay. So Elon Musk yesterday saying they should join the NACS coalition. So what he's talking about is the super Tesla supercharger network style. And there's two types of plugs, yep. Android versus iCloud, Apple, event, effectively, Lauren. Right. And GM and yep. Ford doing it. If Toyota does join the Tesla standard, is that game over for the other standard? I mean, is every other car company, yes. Kia, Hyundai, Ferrari, are they going to have to go to that standard? Tesla.
8: They're, they're going to have to. The SAE standard allows for two. We had this before with onboard diagnostics back in the 80s, and everyone was fighting for their particular adapter. Well, Tesla was smart. He sat down with Jim Farley, and, and uh, Jim is a very wise person, and he realized that partnering in with Elon Musk was the smartest thing he could do when it came to the infrastructure because it also opened up that infrastructure for the mach and the Lightning trucks to have another place to charge because Teslas can charge anywhere. So now what they're going to be doing is, as soon as Mary Barra sat down with him. She's now chasing that same pattern of saying, hey, yeah, we're going to do that too. As soon as Toyota and Honda jump on board and everybody else, it's going to change everything. Just like VHS and Beta, right? We all picked a direction, and that's the direction Although it's is, going to be. Is but you have some, to look at the investments. As somebody pointed
2: out to me, Did, the wrong format one Beta was better. But VHS won out. And I wonder if – because TV used beta forever, and I do wonder if Tesla is the beta and everything else is the VHS. By the way, this month's issue of Road & Track, Mike, I love the Bronco Raptor climbing up the hills of California. I'm an avid reader. I subscribe. Urge everybody to check it out. Mike Guy, appreciate it. Lauren Fix, thank you. Bronco Raptor. All right, still ahead. The struggle to find homes for sale getting even worse. How much longer will wannabe buyers be left out in the cold a player that owns 100,000 homes and can buy a home in minutes. We're going to introduce you to him and his company next. All right, time now for the last call. Watch list: the most remarkable stocks on our radar today. Look at Microsoft. All-time high close. Executives now say they're expecting $10 billion in annual AI revenue. Been a long road back since November of 21, but Microsoft reaching new heights once again, closing at $348 a share. Another stock and sector we're looking at the cruise lines. Yeah, cruise ships. Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian. Those stocks on a tear this year. Carnival, it's doubled. Royal Caribbean, almost. Norwegian, up 60%. The cruise line industry is the last to recover from the pandemic, and these stocks are roaring back in a big way. But I will say, Still below the pre-pandemic highs. And finally, Miami-based home builder Lenar hitting an all-time high today. The rally underway during our show yesterday after Lennar's strong earnings. They delivered, sold 1,000 more homes than was predicted with a large portion of the housing market locked in at extremely low rates. The appetite for selling existing homes is very, very low. The bottom line is this in America. We need more homes. In fact, the housing market is very tight right now. Maybe the tightest anyone has ever seen. There are nearly 40% fewer homes for sale than the were pre-pandemic. People are not just interested in selling because they don't want to give up their low-rate mortgage. There's also been a home-building slump that lasted more than a decade. While the stock of housing is low, housing stocks are not. See what we did there? One big ETF making investors nearly 30% this year. So where exactly is housing headed? Joining us now is founder and CEO of real estate investment firm Predium Partners, Don Mullen. They own more than 100,000 homes around America and can buy a home in less than an hour. We met in Milken. Thanks for schlepping out here to New Jersey, Don. We appreciate it. When you, said, you sat down, you go, that 40% number is wrong that we just cited. How come?
9: So the, the key part of that number is it's a large part being made up by home builders like Lennar. So when we talked about how terrific job they've done at Lennar, uh, you really have to focus on the fact they're selling into a market where almost 70% of the market, or I should say, owner-occupied homes for sale is down 70%.
2: So like me selling my home yeah. is the down average 70%.
9: 0%. Yes. Home prices are up, but the Fed has effectively destroyed more supply than it did demand. How? Because the average homeowner now has a mortgage rate that's below 4% like
2: like 90% or below 75%, or like yeah,
9: 90% below five, 75% below four. So as a result, the average homeowner is a very still, a pretty sophisticated person. They understand they can't replace that liability stream. And so as a result, it makes much more sense for them to stay in their home than to upgrade. You buy the same home today at today's mortgage rates, and your cost of money is double. Well, because. You, so you can't upgrade Because anymore. people
2: buy home, um, not you, but I think people, me, when I was buying a home, you buy it on the monthly payment. How much can I afford? And then sure. you look at the interest rates and taxes and kind of do the math there. I think people have been waiting for prices to come down. And in many parts, they've remained stubbornly high.
9: Yeah, we've had small declines throughout the country, but we have a structural imbalance. You know, we had this conversation at our conference, not Milken, but our investor conference back almost a year ago. And Larry Summers and I had a very big debate is, are we in a situation we have housing inflation or a structural imbalance? We believe that we've been in a structural imbalance relative to the size of the population for many years now. And it's not going to get any better. But
2: why not? If there's too much demand, th- there should
9: be more supply. You want to make money, right? Hey, start a home. Well, builder. home builders have some of the best margins they've had in a decade. And you would expect them to continue to see that as we're in a position that the labor force loosens up. Home prices remain relatively stable. And demand is demographically driven, not just interest rate driven. Household formations remain, remain persistently high. And there's a lot of Americans in the millennial generation and Gen Z. We know they're bigger than the baby boomers.
2: You just bought how many homes from Dr. Horton?
9: It's public. Almost
2: 4,000. So you bought at one time? Yes. You bought fourth, about 4,000 I, I new homes about at one time? There Both were mine. many
9: owner-occupied, but I think what's important about that is Right now, one of the things that people in our industry can really be useful and helpful uh, to the economy as a whole is by providing more capital to home builders so they reduce the risk of their downside because when interest rate volatility is up, their sales do go down. So as a result, by providing more capital to housing stock, more capital towards the rental market, we provide more housing to people who are desperately in need today. And so it's not just the average American the housing problem we have is actually for people in lower incomes. Yeah. So, right now, there's, in Atlanta, as an example, almost 15,000 homes, excuse me, 15,000 vouchers that don't have a home, meaning people getting Section 8 vouchers can't find a house to move into. So, there are Poor people in this country can't access housing. So,
2: because when we met, so, when we met, and I learned about your business, I said, "Don, you're you're you're, you're crushing housing. You're the you're the problem." And you're like, I'm "No, no, no." And you made a case. Fraction, but- you, well, you also said, "We buy homes and rent them out. Otherwise, people aren't going to find homes to
9: rent that they can later on maybe buy." Sure. And many people are living in aspirational communities they can never afford to buy the housing, even before this move in interest rates. But we believe today one of the ways that we can access more housing and putting more capital behind affordable housing, helping home builders build that, turning a lot of housing stock into accessible for people who have vouchers. But we darn need help from the government to be in a position to simplify the process. What would you do? Right now, the standards vary dramatically by county by county, and there's no scalability in the system. And when you talk about the speed we could execute and build housing stock, what we need is a simplified system that allows us to have a single standard to get people into housing stock.
2: Well... Hopefully, somebody's listening. Hopefully, they're watching because you know housing. Congrats on passing the 100,000 home mark.
9: Thank you so much.
2: I knew you back when when you were only (laughs)
9: 98,000. Don, thank you. Coming up,
2: the death of hidden fees, a radical change coming for sports and concert fans. The CEO of SeatGeek will join us exclusively next. All right, if you bought a concert or a sports ticket or anything recently, you go online, you select your seat, you go to the checkout, and then you get surprised by hidden fees. It's not fun and it's expensive. Well, those days should soon be over, sort of. Today, President Biden announced that ticket sellers, Ticketmaster and SeatGeek will provide customers with the full price of their tickets up front. Here's the president talking about it at the White House.
3: Junk fees are not a matter for the wealthy very much, but they're a matter for working folks like the homes I grew up in. And they can add hundreds of dollars a month and make it harder for families to pay their bills. I think it's just wrong.
2: Now, to be clear, the companies did not commit commit to killing the extra costs. They're just going to tell you about them before you are shocked right as you're about ready to hit purchase now or whatever. Joining us now for Last Call exclusive is SeatGeek, co-founder and CEO Jack Kreitzinger, he was at the White House today when President Biden made that announcement. Jack, what are these fees? Why do they exist? Why, why are they
10: needed? What are they? Your question. They exist for different reasons. It, it depends on the particular ticket. For example, delivery fee might be a, a need for a fee if the ticket's getting delivered. What's What's really problematic is when a user, when a buyer doesn't know what they're going to pay until the very end of the process and they feel like they're getting surprised. We are major believers in price transparency and in users knowing what they're going to pay. And that's why we were a part of the announcement today. I think it's what's right for consumers. It's the right thing to do. And it's good for the industry as well.
2: Delivery fees online. You can understand a lot of people like, what's the delivery? Like, I'm just printing them.
10: Yeah, sorry, I use that. Not generically send, as an you're not You I, I get it. But I want to be fixed. clear on
2: what it is. You're not sending some, you know, yeah. courier with a with a like, with, back when they did. Yeah, that me, let me give you another example.
10: If if a venue is charging a fee, it might be to cover the staff that actually runs the venue, the rent, you know, electricity, utilities, things that are actually involved in putting on the show. Whereas the base price of a ticket might go directly to the artist.
2: Okay, so a lot of this, and I did not know that until you just said it. I I kind of assumed respectfully that this was just like your way to make more profit. You might be getting jammed up by the by the arena who might be springing stuff on you like these stupid resort fees at hotels that don't have a resort.
10: Yeah, we, you know, with each of our clients, we've got a relationship where the the fees are very understood at the outset. So I wouldn't say we were getting jammed up by any arenas. I, I just make that point because. There's lots of different ways that companies might charge fees I know in our case it's always to cover costs I'm sure there are other cases online of folks that are maybe doing more what you're implying uh, and being less upfront about what they're charging
2: yeah is there a way to make sure everyone does this you're, you're gonna it sounds like you're gonna do it you've committed it sounds like with with others um there are many other ticket providers how do we get them to do it as well because it's gonna even if it's the same price Jack you get it it's annoying. I'd rather the hotel charge me $300 a night than $250 a night, and then I go through all the crap, and then it's $300 because there's a $50 you know, uh, resort fee or Wi-Fi or whatever it is. Cleaning tax.
10: It's a million dollar question. And the thing I'm really worried about is a situation where a few companies are transparent and they do the right thing, and they allow fans to see everything all in, but others don't. And unfortunately, that can be rewarded. Because the reason that people do this is it works often mm. and you have this risk of a race to the bottom. So what, what we're focused on is doing what's right for consumers, but making sure that the entire industry does that and that everyone steps up versus companies that are actually doing what's yep. best for fans being punished for doing that. Quickly, Cava
2: IPO, Mediterranean food it doubled today. You've talked about going public a few times. Does it, Are you going to go public now that you see how hot Kava is?
10: I can't comment on that, but I order Kava for lunch all the time. I'm a big fan. There
2: you go. Big, big fan of Kava. Maybe a big fan of Kava stock. We'll see if you're a big fan <laughs> of the IPO market someday. Jack, we appreciate it. Jack Kreitzinger, thank you.
10: Thanks for having me. All
2: right. Speaking of, Kava shares were the hottest thing in the market today, but the food? Even hotter. I went to one today. I ordered basically the spiciest thing they had. You're going to see it coming up. Plus, the best states to do business in America, CNBC's new rankings. Set to kick off next. It is a question for the ages, or at least every 12 months. Which is America's top state for business? Now, every year, CNBC ranks all 50 states for competitiveness in our exclusive study, which Scott Cohn has been doing since 2007. It is built to handle whatever the changing American economy can throw at the state's. And that is a good thing this year. Scott Cohn tells us how it works and what to look for in 23.
0: The economy is uncertain. This is a very weird number. Despite billions from Washington. This increased research and development funding to ensure the United States leads the world in the industries of the future. Companies are desperately seeking talent. In a raging culture war.
3: The woke mind virus represents a war on the truth, so we will wage a war on the woke.
0: What does it all mean? Our top state study is sorting it out. We start with the workforce.
10: Companies are looking at where people are going because that's the best indicator of where they're going to continue to go. Which states
0: are attracting the most best educated, most productive workers? Which states have the best infrastructure for companies to expand? Where's the best economy? the best quality of life, health and inclusion.
6: You don't think abortions about the economy, yeah. you might not have a uterus.
0: We look at the cost of doing business, technology and innovation, business friendliness, education, access to capital and the cost of living. You can read more about our study and all about state business competitiveness at our special website, topstates.cnbc.com. We'll have lots more coming up in the weeks ahead as we dive deep into all of these issues. And then I will be in the winning state. You know the drill. We'll reveal America's top state for business. You'll be able to see where your state ranks as well. That's coming in July right here on CNBC. It's a really interesting year.
2: And you don't even, I mean, I want to be clear. You don't tell us. No one, I think one person knows. We all try to guess. Your hints are devious. Because you're a devious man, Scott Cullen. I'm just going go, to go. In out the best a, possible way. Okay. Is California the winner this year? <laughs> you can't you, you, say. You got a one in you, you 50 chance. You live in California. Don't go into that. Yeah. How has this evolved Since 2009
0: well a lot a lot of things have stayed the same like our basic categories Mm, But you've seen how the economy changed when we first started this in 2007. It was all about costs. It was all about incentives Gradually, it's changed to this what we were just talking about the labor issue because states
2: can game it if it's all about incentives right?
0: They can and companies can game it as well and states have got started to realize that and started to find ways to claw back incentives but not always uh, and, and companies right now are just looking for the people. And it's not just the economy. It's a demographic issue. There are people our age are retiring, and the young people aren't coming in to replace us. Sorry, age I aged know. I know. I, I, now I want
2: to cry. I just, <laughs> uh, but there are people who's retiring at my age, people who've sold their companies that are billionaires. Yeah. When does it kick off? Uh, well, we're, we're kicking Coverage. off the, over
0: the next few weeks. Uh, July 11th is the big reveal date, and I will be in
2: the top stage. Love it. Scott Cohn, great stuff. Good to see you back east as well. It's good to be Stay here. Stay here. All right. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Mediterranean restaurant chain Cava went public today, and investors, they ate it up. Stock doubled. But we were wondering just what all the excitement was about, so we did what any good journalist should do. We went to the source to kind of see what it was all about. All right, guys. got to so a uh, pita. Good. Kava, I gotta say delivered on the um, delivered it's good. All right, so there was a Kava. I, I never been in one, never heard of it actually it used to be called Zoe's Mediterranean kitchen checked it out, went in the place is clean nice. not an advertisement when the stock doubles and they're calling themselves the Chipotle of Mediterranean. I wanted to see what it was all about So I went in, you pick either a bowl or like the pita. There it is. Yeah, I got gigantic mitts I'm sorry. And then, you know, I did super spicy chicken, got a little on my cheek. Sorry about that. I know. Um, gave one bite, two bites, by the way, to my producer, Max Myers, who couldn't handle the spice. He was like, oh, my face bald. So his head was all sweaty. It wasn't even that spicy, Max. It was, anyway, Cava food, I have to say two thumbs up. All right. Or I'll rank it like Portnoy. All right. Before we go, a more important announcement. The team last call has a new member. Our already missing booking producer, Danielle Tasca. Taylor, husband John, they brought that beautiful baby boy into the world. Reese John Taylor, born at 820 Eastern on Wednesday, seven pounds, 13 ounces, 19 and a half inches. The best part, everyone is healthy and doing great. And get this, baby Reese joins his four other siblings, Danielle, John. They now have five kids. Good luck. We love you. Congratulations. Beautiful family. Amazing. I'm going to tear up, but I'm just going to blame the spicy kava like Max's head.
5: Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.